Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Corey Allen, the author of Now is the Way, an unconventional approach to modern mindfulness. Corey is a meditation teacher, audio engineer, and host of the Astral Hustle podcast, where he connects with experts in mindfulness, neuroscience, and philosophy. And as you'll hear in the episode, I'm a longtime listener to his podcast. I highly recommend it. In the conversation, Corey and I discuss meditating on mortality, impermanence in daily life, the limits of perception, how to think about self-improvement, and much more. I really enjoyed the conversation and hope you do as well. Please welcome the wise and gracious Corey Allen. Well, Corey, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, man. I'm glad to be here and, and uh, looking forward to talking to you. Uh, the pleasure is mine. I've been looking forward to this as well. Uh, as I said, I'm a longtime listener, so a big fan, also a fan of the book, Now is the Way, uh, especially on Audible. So I couldn't recommend it enough. You did a great job uh, reading that. Thank you so much, man. I really <laughs> appreciate that. And I can tell you a funny little – I've actually never shared this before. Let's so this it. is a really funny behind-the-scenes look at the, the audiobook. So, um, you know, before I, my podcast took off and, and whatever, um, I had started my own audio production company. So I'd done that for, you know, a decade prior to, to really doing my podcast, which is that's why my podcast sounds good, because I still have all the equipment uh, to, you know, to produce <laughs> professional quality um, records. And I just run my voice through it. And it sounds I mean, my voice already sounds the way it does. And then you sweeten that up with some gear and you get a nice <laughs> outcome. Um, so point of that is, is that whenever it came time to record my audiobook, they were like, well, we're going to book you a studio in Austin and whatever. And you can do like, you know, they want you to do like three, eight hour days or three, 10 hour days or something like that. And I was like, well, here's the thing is that if I record it at home in my studio, it's going to sound better than <laughs> like if I go somewhere else and then I can just do it like at my leisure and whatever. And so they were cool with that. Um, but the problem was is that it was during the summer here, and it was like 105 degrees outside. And so, of course, you want to kill you know, the, the air conditioner. Um, and then all of the tube amps that I have in my studio raise the temperature as well. So I was like pouring sweat <laughs> while I was reading that entire audiobook. And I also – it was so bad that I actually went and got like an ice pack, you know, like if you sprain something, and like put it on my shoulders. I was like, all right. So I had to – I recorded most of that while I was like profusely sweating and had an ice pack <laughs> on, on my shoulders. Literal sweat equity going into the audio yeah. of the book. I love it. I looked so, at it as like actually as a, a fun um, test of my mindful strength, though. I, that's that, that's how I was looking at it and positioning, like just framing it in my mind. Is like, all right, well, let's see like how much I can remain focused and just be simply aware of the external factors and the elements and keep my. I like little challenge. I do actually. I do things like that to booby trap myself sometimes. <laughs> so I'm like, so I can see if I can deal with the challenge of staying on point, you know, in, a, in an important moment, uh, just because it's fun. 
Um, so that was how I looked at it. How often are you thinking in those terms of of the challenge and the the game of it? We had a previous guest on William Irvine who wrote a book basically on that the Stoic challenge of of kind of mm. the the game of it of of life. Are you thinking about that quite a bit? Um, not well. I suppose I'm always thinking about it in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I don't use that as a mechanism um, frequently to overcome things unless mm-hmm. it's a particular circumstance because I just don't really need to. Yeah. Um, but if it's something that's sort of just like really challenging or sort of just preposterous, like <laughs> recording a you know yeah. audiobook while you're pouring sweat, then I'll like just reframe it like that so that it becomes. Um, something fun to achieve as opposed to something that's going to be inconvenience and um, kind of wear you down or whatever. Well, often on this show, we start around the search, if you will, of maybe what started this search. I've, I've heard you mention on previous podcasts of how in your teens, you initially kind of got into philosophy and, and reading different things could you provide any insight into, you know, maybe what sparked this this search? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, it was all out of necessity. And it's really, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me, of course, but the more if I look back and think about it, um, probably not as interesting to others, but the, the, the landscape of information, it was completely different. I mean, I don't know how old you are. Maybe you're in your 30s or early 40s or something. Early 40s. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I just turned 40 uh, a few uh, – a week ago. So, you know, we're now nice. finally in the club. I yeah. waited 40 years when I got in. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, you know, you know, back in the 90s, as I'm sure you recall, like, I mean, th- th- yeah, there was no Google. There was no YouTube. There was no nothing. If you wanted to learn anything, I mean, you had to go – there wasn't even a way to figure out what to go find out to learn. <laughs> I mean, that's the weird thing is it's like – you know, there wasn't a way to figure out, like, well, what book would blow my mind? Who knows? And there's no one to ask. You know what I mean? So you basically have to, like, go into a bookstore and you could talk to someone that worked there, but they might not know what they're talking about. Or you could just sort of, like, wander around. That's why, like, I, I grew up working in record stores. Um, and that was part of the culture of that that I really liked. It was, like, you become this, you know... Um, person who can who can talk to someone understand you know what they're looking for what they already like and then lead them to a place that they don't know about and they really open up a portal in their mind to this whole new world of art you know but that that was kind of the the only way to do it back then so um to me it all the search for that all came out of necessity because of just my um my environment whenever i was growing up as a child and as i got older and uh, into my my early teens kind of mid-teens um, the level of frustration and unhappiness and the you know emotional and environmental challenges that I was dealing with made it to where I had to figure out some way to alleviate that. And I had no you know parental guidance on those things. Um, I mean, they were the cause of those things to a large degree. And so I also at the same time, however, it came to be, figured out like, okay, no one's going to show me a, a real version of the world that's useful, so I have to figure it out. And I didn't have the language for that as a kid, but that was how I started feeling like, well, I better get in the driver's seat, you know. 
So I was just had my eyes open for any way to relieve the pressure and, and the the you know just kind of general suffering and anxiety, and really um, a lack of of authorship of my own reality because of just being manipulated constantly emotionally and intellectually you know by people that you're supposed to trust, um, and so I randomly you may have heard me say this before but I randomly overheard someone one time say that if they could have dinner with any two people or three people or whatever, who would it be? And I remember the names. They said Jesus, Nietzsche, and you know whoever else. And I remember thinking, like, I didn't know who that was. And I remember thinking, that's an interesting name. It sounds like a swipe of a sword, you know? <laughs> it's sharp. Um, and so one time, just in a bookstore randomly, I was walking by and I just saw that name on the back, on the spine of a book. And I was like, ooh, there's that name. And I went over... Pulled it out. It was like the portable niche. It was a collection, just some kind of various tidbits. And I remember reading it and, uh, you know, I had always felt just as far as in the way that I think, I'm sure this is a common experience, very out of sync, especially then with no internet, very out of, out of sync with the people that I was in contact in my life system. Like I just couldn't relate and connect with people. I always felt like I don't know, just like we were speaking different languages. And mm. whenever I read that, you know, open the Nietzsche, I was like, oh, wow, this is how I think. This is kind of the math of how my mind works. And it was just really revelatory to me. And I became obsessed with Nietzsche and then Western philosophy. And then eventually, you know, I, um, because one, you know, like Schopenhauer, of course, was one of the first Westerners to bring Eastern thought into Western philosophy, or at least, you know, think about it and be interested in it. Um, and Nietzsche was a fan of a fan. Nietzsche was, you know, uh, a, a um, proponent of Schopenhauer's philosophy. <laughs> um, and so that led me, you know, to that. And then also at the same time, because of kind of the drug culture that I was uh, in, and, you know, at the time, the sort of hippie gateway philosophers were popping up a lot too. You know, Terrence McKenna, Robert Anton Wilson. Um, you know, Ram Dass, Alan Watts, of course, those type of people. So those things all led me to Eastern philosophy, which then once I finally um, got to that, I remember it was, you know, um, it's sort of a screen memory, but I remember looking at the book. I think it was Essays on Zen Buddhism by D.T. Suzuki, which I still have to this day, I've, you know, and, and read it at least once a year. It's such a great one. Um, but I remember reading that and being like, oh, wow, this is not only how I think, but this is what I think. Mm. So that was whenever those two things really connected and, and and expanded for me. But that was just how I got to it. It was out of necessity and just a weird, aimless searching uh, for <laughs> finding something that was useful. This is a fitting podcast for me to be on. I tr it truly was a search for wisdom. And um, But the thing that's bizarre about it is is that I alluded to at the beginning of this is that I mean, just the chance of finding those things and them all coming together and me being where I was at that time and mentally at the place to even resonate with that stuff uh, and have the, you know, because I didn't understand it, you know, really, but I would just reread, you know, a, a one sentence even just with this, like, I, you know, it was an insane drive and insatiability to understand where I was like, if I just reread the same sentence over and over and over I'll eventually understand something. I'll, it'll click a little bit. And that's what I did with a lot of it. I would just read it over and over until I, until I had that, ah, oh, okay. 
And I would read the next sentence and over and over, and I'd be like, all right, I think I got that. And I'd read them together and be like, I see, you know, and then a paragraph would make sense. And that's how I just plowed through that stuff as a, you know, a dumb kid that had no, like, no one in my entire extended bloodline has ever, you know, <laughs> been in, interested in any of those topics. But, you know, it was just kind of a way through necessity and dedication to plow through. Well, I greatly appreciate you sharing some, some background, Corey. It, related to this search, where would you say you're at today? And I guess a part two to that, does this search end or is it an infinite path, I guess? Well, I think it's up to you, you know, whether it's an infinite path. It's sort of like, um, I would say there's an infinite amount of music to listen to, right? In relativity to the human, like you can't... Um, Sure, there's there's a, a quantitative amount of music that exists on Earth, and there's always new music being created every day. Um, but uh, as a single stream of consciousness, if you went to A on Apple Music and hit play of their entire database, you would die before you got to the Ds even, probably, because <laughs> there's yeah. so much music out there. So yeah. relative to your experience, there's an infinite amount. you know. And so I look at knowledge and insight and, and stuff like that the same way, where it's like you know, in wisdom, I suppose would be the right word to use here, um, is that there is an, it is an endless path if you are driven to continue on discovering. And I think that what that means to you, or certainly what it's mean to me over time, it just keeps changing. You know, it keeps changing. I mean, it all started with uh, a need, you know, a necessity, a type of like self-undoing, unpacking, deconditioning, reshaping, rebuilding, you know. And I think that a really useful mechanism that I discovered, uh, again, you know, in my late teens is that every time I became insatiable with reading about, you know, these type of things. And I figured out that if like I read enough and understood enough, I would feel like kind of high afterwards. And I realized it just clicked to me one thing. That's literally my, you know, subjective perception, just sort of expanding a little bit, me understanding myself and the world with a little bit more, uh, breadth and clarity and, and most importantly perspective and that being able to just notice that when it happened is one why it's like fun and it never stops getting fast you know it's like so how could you ever get tired of this feeling of like your perception expanding and your in in enrichment and depth of understanding of like what it means to be human i mean obviously that's a a, a deep deep interest uh for me and has been my entire life um but it's like that thing, it can't end. It can't stop. And only I mean, to me, it stops whenever you die because, you know, like it, it's not never going to be fascinating <laughs> to me, you know? And the cool thing is that like, you don't even have to keep on reading, you know, all the time. You don't have to stay like, you know, with your nose buried in books 10 hours a day because at a certain time, that's like the whole goal of meditation, of much of the Eastern sort of you know, insight path. And, you know, of course, the non-dual path is just to recognize the meditator, right? Recognize the the awareness of the mind that is, that is behind, you know, the witness that is observing the thoughts, observing the processing and flowing of your reality. And once you recognize that, you then turn your look uh, into books and to lectures and things like that for knowledge to your own mind. So your teacher becomes your own mind at that point because you can observe what you're thinking, what you're experiencing, how you're responding and reacting to life, what thoughts and ideas come up that you, you know as they're happening so that you can begin to see 
you know, how your consciousness is flowing and arising and into the world and also how you're really sort of removed from that in a way. So your own, the contents of your um, internal ecosystem of mind and body become the book in a way, if that makes any sense, where you just study that and refine it as it goes. So, you, you know, you can continue that path uh, just completely uh, like that, too, if you like, which is quite fascinating as well. I want to follow the thread on, on something you mentioned of perspective and dying. You did a podcast probably about a, a year ago now, and I've wanted to chat with you about this since since then. You went into great detail on meditating on mortality. And the listeners are familiar, this memento mori, something that comes up in philosophy, it's come up on a, on a number of episodes. But it was a little bit different how you explained it of really going into detail in a, in a deep way. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit uh, about that, that practice. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, death is something really close to my heart. <laughs> um, I think that uh, it'd be a perfect time for me to have a heart attack. I think that, um, that you know, I had a, a, a kind of unusual entry point into thinking about death, and I, it certainly has affected um, the way I think about life. You know, I had lots of friends die of drug overdoses whenever I was really young, you know, wow. like like 12, like 13, 14, that type of stuff. And we were getting crazy. And some of my friends, you know, just got unlucky. Um, and like, for example, you know, like my best friend, acts, it's kind of a, a dark, you know, not dark, but it's just a, a, a heavy type of um, – Sing a story to share, but hey, you brought up Memento Mori. <laughs> so, uh, you know, whenever I, my best friend, you know, whenever I was, I think I was, you know, maybe 13 or 14 or something like that, uh, he'd asked me if I wanted to come over to his house and hang out. He said he had some codeine and some Everclear, and he was like, you know, we're going to get, that's, that'll do you up, right? Um, which anyone listening, please do not mix those two. Um, and so I was like, I'm all good. You know, I'm just going to like hang out. I don't really feel like it. And the next morning his dad called me. I was like freaking out, screaming that his son was cold and was asking me like what was going on. And basically he had just taken it and died during the sleep. And as a kid, you know, having that phone call of like a freaking out, he just called me because he knew I was his friend and we were like supposed to hang out. Mm. So like, you know, experiences like that early on will tune you up a little bit, you know, and make you think differently and they're, I had no, like literally, you know, I guess it's a combination of my, you know, my family system and also just the nineties of it was like, there was no conversation about it. It was like, go to his funeral and then no discussion whatsoever. <laughs> like, are you okay? Do you want to talk about this? No, it was basically just like, ignore it. Like it never happened so that we don't have to deal with, you know, this, you know, the trauma of that. So I was kind of like, all right. Well, that's interesting. And then, of course, uh, as I mentioned before, and I put in my book, you know, then also my dad died whenever I was 20 as well. And so um, having, you know, friends and things like that pass away. Uh, and then, you know, my dad uh, was kind of the finale uh, on that. It made it to where one death was very apparent to me. You know, it was like, mm -hmm. this is real. Um, whenever you're a kid and your best friend dies or your friends die or your, your, your dad who you never really had a real good relationship dies, it's like 
okay, well, this is like people just get removed from the playing field here. Like people disappear, you know, and it's very real and it's going to happen to you, you know? Uh, and so what does that mean? How do, how can you, you know, change your behavior? How can you take that, the truth of the finality of life and turn it for some, from something that could be scary and could be crippling into something that is realistic and energizing and enriching to your experience. And to me, I, th I think that's why, you know, whenever I, that's why I set off so hard and so strong whenever I was that age, you know, whenever, as far as like forging my own path of the pirate ship, I call it of being, you know, self-employed and just doing basically doing whatever I want all the time. You know, that's the, like, I want to do what interests me always and not have to answer to anyone. That was kind of part of the goal. Um, and so that was one of the reasons why I was like, there's no time to waste here. Whenever I was like turned 21, I was like, there's no, this is like, things have to get started. And that's why I just started the you know music production company and <clears throat> a few years later, but figured out how to do that, like, and just forge my own path and was really intense about it. Cause I was like, you know, this thing comes to an end and, uh, I, you gotta just, do do it now no sitting around and waiting until you know a decade passes and you get forced into do it it's like no take action take control of your own existence you know engage and and make choices and take chances and put in like i i feel like i talk about this so much but it's so important is like our will it, our human will is so so strong and we don't give it enough credit it's because we've like humans naturally seek the path. I swear I'm going to get around to what you asked me at the beginning, but the, the, you know, we, we don't, you know, humans naturally seek the path of least resistance because we're these biological creatures that we're, we're, we need to maintain our energy because it takes a lot of energy to be in a big old organism with a big brain and you got to eat a lot of food. You got to sleep, you got to rest. And so we're just naturally sort of lulled into, being lazy essentially and in rationalizing the fact that we should just kind of lay around and there's nothing wrong with with laying around i mean one of my favorite pastimes is just laying on the couch and staring at the ceiling i joke about it like um i mean if you've seen that meme of pablo escobar from the show where he's just like staring at the middle distance from like a various different that's like me sometimes i just stand there and like stare into nothingness for periods of time because it's quite quite enjoyable um but you know you can <clears throat> If you recognize that that is sort of how we're programmed and then see just how strong your will is and think about it for a second, think, hold on a second, like you, your choices and what your life is like is not out of your control. You feel like it is because you're used to not taking action. You're used to feeling tired and feeling like you don't have any power and like you, well, I'm just going to kind of watch Netflix or whatever and like hang out. I'd love to be doing X, Y, and Z. That's nonsense. You can do that. Like, and I'll use the example of like, if you were in a, like someone might say, I wish I could stop eating a little chocolate before dinner or before bed every night. Like the night Gary's and I eat dinner, then I'm watching something on Netflix and I get a little snacky. I go grab a chocolate. And now I've done that for a couple months. I've put on a little weight. I don't really like that. So you, and people will be like, oh, I can't stop doing it. It's like, are you crazy? And, and no offense to anyone that has that problem. I just mean, um, let me reframe that. Um, you completely have the control to do it. You just have to wake up to that, that reality. And so, for example, if you were in the middle of the woods, you're hiking by yourself, you know, 
and you're, you know, I don't know, five miles away from the nearest roadway, you trip, you fall, your phone shatters, uh, and you break both your legs, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to go, well, I'd love to, <laughs> I'd love to climb, claw my way back over to the road, but I just can't do it. You know, no, what would happen is that you, you're, you're, your feeling that you need to always be in this kind of low resistance mode would evaporate in your animal brain. And I call it the, I've jokingly been calling it the creature will, the deep, the creature that's inside of you, that's in all of us, the animal that is dying to survive will wake up and you'll turn around, you'll think about your family and the people that you love and your life and all the things you didn't do. And you'll go into this almost like blackout mode of just going, okay, I know, remember the road is that way. I'm going to start dragging myself and I'll get there. It might take hours. It might take a few days, but I'm not going to give up. And you would get yourself there with like pure tenacity and power. And that is that will doesn't it, it's like it's in you now you know but you just have to wake it up and like realize that you have the power to use it and it doesn't have to be extreme in this way of like um you don't have to go like you know you have to turn into an animal but you can just tap into the fact that you have a precision of mind and ability to control your actions and your thoughts that is often overlooked and whenever you look at like that struggle versus the struggle of like, oh, I wish I wasn't snacking on chocolate every night. Like, think of how preposterous that like, of course, you can choose not to do that. Of course, you can, you know. And so if you take that, you know, the example of the will that's laying dormant in all of us and apply it to your daily life. Well, what is your life right, like right now? And what do you want to be doing? Right. And you tap into that force of like, you can, you know, you can do it. You just have to, you know tune into that frequency and apply the command of your will in that way to it. And it will, it, no pun intended, happen. So anyway, um, yes. So that's, uh, was a big, you know, death had that effect on me being close to death, being around those things and, and witnessing it. Um, it had that effect of like waking up that, what I just explained kind of on its own, isolated within me at a, at a young age and it's been very useful, you know, um, going forward, not only to be on the performative side of like trying to accomplish things, um, but on the side of keeping the dark sides of myself under control, like not letting the darkness win, you know, because I had so much of it. I used to joke with a friend of mine about like, you need an eat, like to be as compassionate and rich and kind and as like present as, uh, and as you know, high minded as, some of the people that you see and might admire, like you almost at some point in your life have to have an equal amount of darkness to, to like be the catalyst for that. Cause it's the whole thing is a spectrum. It's not like, you know, uh, an orange just, just doesn't have one side. It grows, you know, it grows as a full circular thing, but the key is learning how to cut that orange up, you know? Uh, and so, yeah, that will was really useful keeping me from, um, you know, leaning into that and um and in another you know interesting thing about the path of mindfulness and, and meditation and just wisdom in general is that like the way that like my personality like it's an extreme personality it's sort of funny is that people think you know I, people that i speak to will think that oh well you're a very like kind of middle stoic middle of the road sensible person that is, you know, it's like, no, no, I'm like a maniac. 
but it's like I just rooted it all into something very extreme, which like being that focused and calm and tuned into the presence and meditation, that's a very extreme way of being. So you don't have to be like that all the time, you know, but it's a notion of like just sort of being able to find the middle space of where you are. Um, I apologize for giving you such long answers, but it's just sort of, you know, the jazz of conversation no, here. No, it's great. No um, apology necessary. I want to follow this idea of impermanence and will, as you mentioned. It, it seems like impermanence shows up in philosophical, spiritual traditions, kind of universal wisdom, if you will. But often when we think of impermanence, everything changes. It's like we think we have it. We think that we understand it. But is the idea of, of impermanence, should we think of it like, you know, there's a fifth degree black belt level of the, the realization of impermanence? And it's like going through a, a meditation and thinking about that in, in detail, you know, frequently as, as people have suggested um, can help us to, to realize that and maybe the connection to will is you know, we're not the person that we were yesterday, like that person that got the, the chocolate. Well, today's a, a new day and it's, we're a new person and it's, you know, that, that has passed. I don't know. Does that connect at all with, with will and behavior change and living, you know, the life that you truly want to live? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and just, you know, now I can finally answer after 10 minutes, the first question that you asked me, was yeah, I think the a meditation on impermanence is really valuable. Um, it's a way that you can uh, and just understanding impermanence as a concept, but then really kind trying to step into it as a lived experience in a way it really is viable. And to I think to a lot of people, it's this sounds counterintuitive in some ways, where it's like it's sort of like memento mori. It's like don't forget you're going to die. It's like, well, that doesn't sound like a very cheery type of, you know, thing to have as, as a screensaver, you know, bouncing around your screen every morning. Um, but it, but in truth, it, it really is a beautiful, you know, sentiment. Um, but we have a, we have a reaction towards death typically as a society of it being something bad and scary and, and ultimately a threat because it's, it's like, you know, it's the, the unknowable thing that, sucks you into it and you have no power of it. You know, you're, you have to really, um, uh, give, give yourself over to this, this insane, you know, unknown, you know, so it really freaks people out. And also being such a heavily <laughs> consumer space company, uh, uh, country, we're all sort of like consumers of our own identity in this weird way. Like we're like marketing ourselves to ourselves. <laughs> so we don't want the, you know, the, the brand identity of ourselves to, to disappear at any point because it's bad for business, you know, <laughs> of the self. <laughs> um, but thinking about it, you know, thinking about impermanence and death with, uh, intention becomes really valuable because a lot of what I was just describing earlier is kind of those awakening moments you can have around death and the positive things that can come out of them. Uh, you can manufacture in some way and kind of bring those things to the surface without having an external intervention or something traumatic outside of you that's happening to force you into that. You can just bring it up as a form of meditation. So the thing that I was talking about that you mentioned 
um, earlier was uh, a corpse meditation, and it's it's a you know it's in the it's a method in the Satipatthana Sutra, you know the Pali Canon, which is basically the the original Theravadan script uh, scriptures of Buddhism. So just for anyone that doesn't know, uh, essentially Buddhism was word of mouth. It was all Buddha telling his homies, you know, what he felt, what he thought, and then about five hundred years after he died. Um, there was the the oral tradition was passed around through a lot of different you know groups of of Ararats and you know high level monks let's put it that way and then my understanding and I've talked to a few scholars about this and it's a little sort of um, up in the air but that there was a lot of there were a lot of roaming wars at that time and so because of that the people that had the oral tradition in their minds. They thought we should write this down in case all of us get wiped out or something. We should really commit it. So that's where the poly canon was was created from. Anyway, so this you know, and and everything that you ever read ever about you know Buddhism all comes from that one document, which is, I mean, you know, the hundred, it's a hundred one thousand page books or whatever. It's gigantic um, and very exhaustive and repetitive, uh, kind of like me today. So, um, but anyway, so this is in there, you know, and it's it's so it's not anything that's not traditional it's quite classical and it's basically to meditate on your own death for a long period of time consistently for an extended period of time so you do it for a long time over a period of time and what that looks like is they're really literally and i'll save all the i'll spare everyone the details but it essentially would be like a shorthand version of it would be let's use the example i used earlier you're meditating, but you're actually visualizing yourself and really putting yourself there. Like you're walking through the woods, you fall, you break a leg, your phone is, uh, you know, shattered or whatever. And then you can't move in this example, uh, because your arms are broken or whatever. And you try and drag yourself with your teeth and that doesn't work. And then you, you literally go through like it granularly, like yourself feeling the thirst, the terror, the worry, all the flash memories of thinking about, you know, your family, um, the fear, the, the knowing that you're going to die, um, feeling yourself give up hope. And then ultimately, you know, animals coming over, taking a little nibble, you know, of your arm or whatever. And then you literally in, you know, just trigger warning for anyone that's disturbed by more graphic imagery and needs to fast forward for 30 seconds. But, um, you then will you know literally imagine your body laying there dead and then swelling up and then you know maggots beginning to eat your flesh and then the flesh rotting off of your body and then ultimately the bones you know, turning to skeleton and then uh, they they're very they're very much interested in they use the word sinew a lot in those original writings so it's that's the tissue that keeps the bone the tendon that keeps the bones together they talk about that evaporating so the bones fall apart. Then those, uh, you know, disintegrate, turn to dust, and then they eventually talk about just the skull turning to to nothingness, to powder. So you really visualize and hold this image of yourself dying and your entire body evaporating into nothingness and rotting away. And so um, welcome back to anyone that fast-forwarded. Uh, <laughs> and so that Im- the image of, you know, Picturing yourself dying in such detail is real. I mean, I've done it a lot over a long period of time, and it's really powerful. And it's it can be really, really difficult, you know, and really um, heartbreaking. And it can make you cry and make you feel really, like, unbalanced and just kind of out of whack. 
but that's the point. You know, that's the point. Think about what you would feel if someone who you love the most died. I mean, you would feel a thousandth of that, you know, or, you know, you'd feel that times a thousand, you know, but you're feeling, you're getting yourself into that space so that you can recognize the fact that, you know, we are impermanent creatures. We're not always going to be here. And the people, and fortunately they go on to put it into a constructive way in the poly canon is that after, you know, doing this and really like getting face to face with the fact that you're going to die, then looking at like bringing compassion into it in meta, you know, of, of like this loving kindness to all things and yourself, you know, you know you're a thing to make, don't forget to love yourself. Um, and so it, with the freshness of the corpse meditation in your mind, you then think, well, does that grudge I've been holding against that dude that stabbed me with a pencil whenever I was in seventh grade? Like I still think about him in the shower and think about what I would have done. You know what? I'm just making something up here, but, um, like that's just that one, that's a total delusion, you know, that's a, or, you know, some person, some, uh, someone that did something, you know, whatever mean to you, even as an adult, and you're still holding it. You're like, yeah, you know, screw that guy. I hope that he, you know, whatever stubs his toe. Um, <laughs> I tried to pick the nicest thing I could think of whenever there are a lot of other things in my brain, but, um, you know, you're, you're carrying around. The point is that you're carrying around that, that, hatred that resentment and that is like it's basically like battery acid mm -hmm. and it's not even real it's this you have the story of an experience that you had a narrative of something that happened which even though that it did happen and pain and suffering was inflicted upon you the circumstances of it are completely you know they morph over time and more importantly, the moment is gone and you don't have this person in your life anymore, hopefully. And to sit around just holding on to some hatred or resentment towards someone, and you can look at that as even small things and like small social situations, someone that you're still friends with, but they were kind of a dick to you or something, or they did something rude or they said something rude in front of you and some other people to you. And you're like holding on to that, like a few months later, like, man, you know. Uh, I'm not really like opening myself up to this person as I normally would have because I'm still kind of holding on to that. Like all of that stuff is just this, you know, you know what what they call, you know, a delusion um, of the true nature of reality. Um, and you're holding on to suffering because really you are the one that's suffering whenever you're angry at someone else, whenever you're holding resentment. They can't feel that. They don't care. They're not thinking about it probably. They're probably thinking about something else. And then you look at all of those little things in your life where you you've, you've got these little you know you know pain points that you're holding on to, and think about how many of those there are that we all experience throughout a life, and now add all those together, you know you, you may, the amount of kind of um, uh, mass suffering within yourself from all of the negative experiences you've had creates a level of uh, of depression, of suffering, of pain, of you know, wrong view, which is basically seeing things in a negative or, you know, hateful type of way or resentful type of way. And not only does it, does it lessen the quality of your experience as a person, but it actually shaves down your ability to see reality with more clarity because you're seeing it with this, you know, toxic type of filter attached to it in some way, even by association. And so this meditation on, you know, yourself dying after you see the 
impermanence of your life and everyone else's life, you then bring the compassion aspect into it. It's like, well, hold on a second. Like, why, why am I spending any time being resentful or hateful towards anybody? You know, why would I carry that whenever all of us are going to die? And I have so little time as a human being on this. Like, like that, that shit doesn't deserve any airtime at all in your brain. And it gives you an opportunity by sort of like ruffling up your emotions and kind of getting you in touch with your mortality in that way to then really truly let go of that stuff and look at it as a, you know, a turning point where like, okay, all that stuff I was holding on to, I'm feeling this real kind of emotional connection with my own mortality. I'm letting it go. I'm going to let it go. And if we get to a situation where we need to have a, a tough conversation with that person to work through it, then we'll do that. But we'll do that in a kind and patient and compassionate way, not in a way of anger or, or a vengeful way, but we'll do it constructively so that both of us can find peace and grow and, you know, have a more tranquil type of existence. And so that meditation, although much like Memento Mori, although it seems rather macabre on the surface, ultimately leads to a very deep and healing way of letting go and also rearranging your perception from them moving forward. Because that's one of the great things is, as I was saying, like, as you pass through life, you're kind of collecting all of these, these points of suffering and this pain and these things that you hold on to. But once you have an experience that allows you to let those go and start to process those, then you see how much lighter, how much better, how much more positive, how much more optimistic and, you know, kind of energetic your, your viewpoint and your perception come, becomes. Then instead of taking on new ones that come as you continue to live through life, because, you know, bad things are still going to happen, um, you can then recognize those as they're happening. And instead of holding them on, holding onto them in the moment, then using your mindful awareness in the present, you can then recognize them for what they are as your mindful strength becomes stronger. Recognize those situations for what they are as they happen, and then they don't even enter the, the, the savings bank of the mind. They just get, I call that, you know, the mindfulness gap. It's like you can just drop it right back into the void of oblivion where it came from. It's like, where was that, you know, before you interacted with that person that said something negative that hurt you, where was that feeling and that saying? It was in the void, right? And so, like, you step into it and you have this thing. It's like, oh, well, let's put that shit right back into the void of infinity. You know, bye. This is a drive through, not a, a dine in restaurant, you know. Um, but it really, but then. And, you know, once you spend more time processing, uh, you know, the things that you hold on to the past and you kind of work those out and free yourself from those, those fetters, as they would be called, um, then you get to a place to where you really open up and you really feel more free because you're not taking on new stuff and you don't have the, all the old stuff that's still holding you down. I love it. That's extremely helpful, Corey. It's, it's reminding me of, uh, the other guys, the the comedy where uh, Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg, they keep doing the fresh start. You know, it's a fresh start. Oh, I haven't seen that, but I... no, uh, you got to check it out. No, um, I want to nice. connect that uh, with something that you mentioned a few times. There, you've mentioned perception, and on your podcast, hundreds of of conversations with neuroscientists, psychologists. You, it seems like you've really been searching. In how we perceive the world is a bit of curiosity for you. What what have you learned there? 
Well, I think the most important thing you can learn in philosophy, and I think probably as a human being, um, other than something about love that I might not be qualified to speak on properly. I mean, I just like, you know, I'm sure there are people who could far more eloquently and state things about love other than it's just very important. (laughs) Um, I think that it might be the most valuable thing to learn, which is that your, your, your perception is subjective, right? And for anyone unfamiliar with what that means, it's that what you perceive as reality is not really the full story of what's happening in the world that you're, you know, think of the fact that there is a world outside of your skin and that you are a content of, you know, a landscape of experience, not the experience itself. You are like an action figure walking on a game board, you know, and realizing that there's all, there's really an infinite amount of events and information happening outside of your body 24 seven. Like as we are having this conversation, someone in France is cracking open a bottle of wine. You know, someone in China is walking through a crosswalk. Someone's in an elevator. Someone's in a plane. It's the little kids writing their first, whatever, you know, um, thing in school. I don't have kids. I don't know what kids do. Writing something. I don't know what they do. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, you know, but it's all happening, you know, it's all happening. And, what our consciousness is and our perception is just a a reading of that information. So our nervous system is like a an instrument. It's like an instrument in a laboratory. And it's just taking in this information from the world outside of your skin, just in the area right around your body. You know, not, not to mention the rest of the universe, the rest of the earth. So you're abstracting information you know, what's happening outside of your skin through all of your senses, which in, you know, in Buddhism, maybe those are called the sense doors. We keep it in the, in the Buddhist realm. And then they, they have a nice thing where, which I really like where they, they have a, the sixth sense is the mind. So you have your five your physical senses and they say the sixth sense is the mind, which is also a sense door because you think about like in the same way that you smell, uh, it's a very good way to stay unattached to your thoughts and undiluted by your mind. This is a way I've used to describe it, just as a quick little aside. You smell an orange, and when you cut it open, and then once it goes, and you're off doing something else, that smell of the orange is gone. There's never a moment where you smell an orange, that the smell of orange is going into your nose and creating information into your brain, saying, oh, that's an orange. There's never a moment where you go, I am this orange and and I'm going to be this orange for days or weeks or years, right? <laughs> you know, it's something outside of your body that you're interacted with. You perceived it and went into your senses. Now it's gone. It's just information. The valuable thing about having, looking at the mind as a sense is that it, it's the exact same thing. So you have a negative thought about yourself, an angry thought. Uh, some type of deluding thought about reality. Oftentimes, because that information comes from inside our bodies, as opposed to outside, like the smell of the orange, it's very confusing for people because they think that, oh, that must be me. That's real because it came from inside. It's just information, just like the smell of the orange. So when you have this thought of like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a loser or whatever, you can step back and go, hold on. 
you don't have to now think I'm a loser for the next two weeks or the next four weeks. It would be just like thinking I'm an orange for the next you know two <laughs> weeks after eating an orange. You can step back into the witness mind space and look at it as like, oh, yeah, that was a random passing thought due to some you know past experience I had that I had didn't sleep well last night. I was a little hungry, you know, whatever, like just some weird combination of physiological factors made you have an emotional, like a random negatively emotional generative thought instead of gripping onto it and thinking, Oh God, I am, you know, <laughs> I am a loser. And then like, having that unfold and spiral into this whole thing, you know, you just see it. All oh, right, that's just there goes the smell of a rotten orange. We're gonna get away from that as fast as possible because it's just information, right? So anyway, so realizing that your your mind and your perception is just this narrative of all of this information that's happening outside of your body and the thoughts that are arising inside of your body, and, and it's all based upon the random chance of experience you've had throughout your life. Because each time that we engage with an experience. You know, our mind kind of charts it and tracks it and then con connects it to the next thing and the next thing. And so we have all these associative experiences and like what quote unquote things mean, you know, and uh, so that just gets more complicated and complicated. And so that creates the, the narrative story of how we see reality and what seems true and real to us. Uh, recognizing that your perception is a story and that it is not even real. I mean, it's, it's real. I, I, maybe I should walk that back a little bit. You know, it's real to you. It's real to each of us who are perceiving it. It's just not objectively accurate all the time. And it is objectively accurate sometimes. You know, whenever people talk about this, um, you know, it can make people feel a little squirrely because you can, they think, well, hold on a second. Is he saying that, if I'm perceiving, a, you know, a cup on the table that someone else is perceiving a cat and then someone else is perceiving, you know, that the table is, I don't know, made out of like melting chocolate or something like that. No, no. And what I'm saying is that, you know, we're all typically, you know, experiencing a, a very similar reality, 99.9% same, but it's the perspective and, and the meaning that's applied behind the texture of the objective world that differs. And that gives our point of view, our, you know, how we think and feel about certain things, which then ultimately influences the physical world because it changes the way that we think. And so our actions are different and how we, how we kind of roll in the world shifts based on how we, how we see it and what's meaningful. And so recognizing that is just so valuable because first off, um, it, it, I mean, most arguments fall away immediately because like what what are you arguing are you trying to litigate each other's perception you know your each other's realities that's basically like me saying like well no my random chance of my whole you know history of living as a human is right and you say no no my random chance of my whole living as a human is right well let's let me convince you that my life is the real life and yours is invalid it's not going to happen like that just doesn't you know that doesn't work so arguments you know if you if you like debating which is great you see those things as which I see most of those things as just, well, they're just different points of view and it can be really valuable to talk about different points of view because it helps you expand your own. And therefore the, you know, the map of your consciousness gets bigger. Um, but just recognizing that your perception is subjective is so useful because it just, you know, even the day to day example of like, if you're say you work in an office and you go into your office 
and your boss is like really short with you and you're like, Ooh, I don't like that. Now I'm a little anxious. I was, everything was great. Now I'm anxious. You go to your desk and, um, you're sitting there and now you're just feeling uncomfortable. Palms are a little sweaty. You're just uneasy. You can't think as clear as you normally would have. And you're like, Oh man, they're, they're mad at me. Like now I'm going to get fired. And now then like, then what will I do? You know? And you start thinking about your whole job market and all this stuff and your bills. And so then you're like, well, let me try and deal with this. I'm going to go check, check in with my boss and just like chat real quick and check their temperature. Then you walk by and you walk in and then they hold, they're on their phone and they hold the finger up to you to tell you to, to hold on. And then they wave you off and you're like, Oh God, now I made it worse. They're probably hiring a replacement. You know, that's who they're on the phone with. So then you go and you spend all day stomach in knots, uncomfortable, worried that they're mad at you, freaking out, maybe talking to someone else about it. Like, hey, trying to triangulate your experience. Were they rude to you as well today? Like, no, no, they were fine to me. Like, oh, God, it's definitely me. So then you finally talk to them. At the end of the day, as they're leaving, they still look frustrated. And you're like, hey, uh, so uh, I hope you have a good night. And like, oh, thanks. Yeah, you know, on the way to work today, someone ran into me. Uh, you know, in their car and it messed up my car and I've been on the phone with the insurance company all day. It's been really annoying, you know, and you're like, oh, cool. And they're like, yeah, yeah. All right. Anyway, uh, have a good night. And it's like, <laughs> oh, that whole story about why they were mad at me and just all that, un- that unnecessary anxiety and festering and really the loss of a day, you know, uh, uh, to something like that. You think about just that, that's one example, but that type of stuff in relationships, just in life and your, you know, your professional life and your social life, like that stuff happens endlessly because we are mistaking the stories of reality for the true nature of reality is what, you know, the Eastern thought would call it, but just actually what's happening. <laughs> we mistake what we think's going on, for you know, for what's actually going on, and once you sort of realize that you, you don't have all the information, you can approach things in a much different way. You know, without this, the the assumption that's like one of the things um, you know, like I put on Instagram, uh, something I've written is like clarity is realizing that the mind is full of assumptions, hmm. and that's a great example of that. I love it. Our our time has flown by here. I've got just a, a couple quick kind of wrap-up questions, if I could, Corey. One is sure. is how you think about self-improvement. I guess, you know, is self-improvement a thing? Like in Buddhist teaching, there this non-self stuff. How do you think about and how should maybe people think about self-improvement? Well, I think that you just invented a whole new, a great new genre of non-self improvement. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, improve the you that doesn't exist. Um, which I, I suppose, in some ways, that is the goal because because they're like improve the non-you that doesn't exist until you really cease to exist as a even a non-you. Um, but yeah, you know, self improvement. It's one of those things that it gives people chills. It makes people cringe. A lot of people when they hear the term um, because. You know, it's sort of really in the 90s, whenever it started coming into existence in the way that it is now, there's so much just bad marketing and like, you know, lame ideas and, you know, soft books that just, you know, it's just kind of gross. And then the the proponents of self-help that like really stick their faces out there in the world are also obviously like just kind of, you know, goobers that you know people don't they're not real people they're putting they're playing this character so they don't feel it doesn't feel good you know it feels kind of gross and cringy so all that like let's just wipe that off the map real quick and think about like 
the the two words self improvement and just unpack what that could actually mean and what I think it means, you know. So self, like who are you right now, right? That you that you are, that you think you are, that you think you might want to be. Like what's it what's inside of you? You know, what are you? And then think about improvement. Like, well, what does that mean? Like you don't need to be improved. Like at the end of the day, as a human organism, if you if you clear away all of the the stories that have been told to us about what we should be doing and what we should be doing with our lives, it's all nonsense. And so, <clears throat> it doesn't really mean anything. Like <clears throat> what the only thing we're responsible for is not dying. And you know, and so like you could lay around and just exist, and you're doing great as a human because you exist. That's all that's required of you as an organism is to be an organism, right? <laughs> and so if you're organisming, then you're that was a dicey one. If you're organisming, then <laughs> you're doing really good, you know. Um, but you know, you look at it and you think, well. You know, maybe uh, like just we've already pulled off the greatest magic trick of all time, which is coming to existence in the first place. So you don't owe anyone else anything. But maybe like maybe this could be even better. Right. So let's like how could we improve this? Because even though I'm existing, I'm not really happy and I don't really feel very good. And I feel sort of like like I'm drifting a little bit. And I don't like whenever I react towards my partner, like, you know, get mad about stuff or I can't talk about stuff or whatever it is or, or all of it, you know? (laughs) So improvement is recognizing, okay, well, I don't owe anyone anything and I don't have to do anything, but I'm not really happy. And I don't feel like I have like control and power of, in my life. And I don't mean power isn't like, you know, some weird gross thing. I just mean like agency, like, what do I want to be doing? Like, let's do that, you know? So self-improvement would be understanding yourself a bit more, using tools like some of the things that I've described to then just improve your life and make your – and also I really um, like the fact that I've seen the term optimal get a lot of hate recently (laughs) because I think that's kind of a – a lame term. It's it's just a marketing word that's been used and kind of glossed over everything. So it's like live an optimal life. Like, well, that by very definition is trying to chunk your life into all these little unattainable standards of perfection that you can never get to that don't really exist. Um, so it's sort of just like self-defeating. So optimal life is just doing what you want to do, you know, in trying to fe- be, feel happy and free of the stuff that makes you unhappy. So yeah, self-improvement, I think, in those terms is a real, very real thing. Uh, I have done – I mean, that's what my life has been, has been being really unhappy and feeling disconnected from the world and feeling a lot of anger and frustration and kind of just a general vitriol and learning how to change that from – like it's all self-taught. I've never had a teacher or a mentor or anything. Um it's all just like watching myself and like discovering and remaining curious about like what are these different modes and there's like this wisdom that's been around for thousands of years that you know I mean it's been around for thousands of years it's probably useful for some reason <laughs> it's probably a reason it's been around let's take a little taste of some of it and see what it what it means and so like picking up something you know Marcus Aurelius or you know some type of you know Buddhist text or you know what some other western philosophy or whatever or I mean a good self-help book that's not you know gross and has someone with a spray tan on the front <laughs> um you know like 
something like that. And just like, okay, well, let's put myself in the lab and let's apply some of that information and that thought to my life right now and just see how things change. Do, do, do things change? Have I gotten to where I don't snap at my partner now whenever I'm feeling frustrated? Have I got to where I can communicate what I'm thinking more clearly? Do I feel more relaxed and more peaceful? Do I feel more optimistic? Do I feel like lighter, like free of the nonsense and the weight of the existential problem that's pushing down on all of us? Well, if it is, then great, then do more of that, you know? And so that's, that's how I look at it. And if you do that and you get a taste of how you can change your own mind and through, you know, through continued practice that just snowballs into more and more self change, uh, until you really do start shifting in these seismic ways, you know? And to me, a beautiful thing I discovered along the way was that as I talked to people, um, just personally about what I was going through and the things I was reading and experimenting with to change how I felt, they were very interested. And it turns out that all of us are suffering. It turns out that all of us have ways, places in our life that we'd like to improve and that all of us could really use it, you know, because like, it's tough being a person, <laughs> you know, life is, life is hard. And I figured out the, you know, that as I learned more of this stuff and just applied it to myself, the more I was able to share it with other people, the more that I just, I look at it as map sharing. So I've been like hacking through the jungle with a machete and I go, Hey, trust me, just follow this path that I, you know, this thing I learned and you can get through a lot quicker. You know, it's like this map will get you through the territory faster than you having to figure it out for yourself. And that becomes just a beautiful extension of self-work is being able to then not be annoying about it, but when it comes up and when the time is right in a tasteful way, then share, you know, something with someone else that just might be meaningful and helpful to them as well. Well, I greatly appreciate the the practical approach and in, in the work that you're doing in the world. I, I think I've got a lot from from some of that hacking and and stuff that you're talking about there over the over the last few years. I highly recommend now is the way. As I said in the beginning, the the audible version of that is absolutely fantastic. <clears throat> so you won't be disappointed. But where do you point people interested in in connecting or learning more about what you're up to, Corey? Yeah, well, thank you for the, the kind words on the audio, audio book. And I would say that um, just my website, Corey-Allen.com, if you still go to websites. Um, and if you don't, and all on social media channels, I'm just, hey, Corey Allen. All right, love it. Well, Corey Allen, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me, man. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.